You are listening to Truth, a six-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series looks at the book of Titus to explain how truth is lived out within the church community. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, last week we started in a series in the book of Titus called Truth, living what you believe because what you believe isn't what you say you believe, how you live is what you say you believe. You tracking with the difference? What you say is not what you believe. How you live is what you believe. Have you, anybody here know someone, and maybe even yourself, who portrayed themselves one way but lived in a completely different way? You know, don't raise your hand because you may be sitting by them. We all know someone like, what do we call that person? We call them a hypocrite, right. We call them a, now, unfortunately, Christians are often associated with hypocrites. Now, I don't think that is specific to Christians. I just think that's it's a human thing. I mean, you athletes, you know, they'll, they'll get on TV and say, hey, I'm not in for the money until their team doesn't give them what they want, and then they leave for more money. Um, politicians, um, enough said. Uh, that's all I have to say. And um, Or the tolerant movement, ironically, are some of the most intolerant people you'll you'll ever meet. So tolerant movement will say something like this, like all religions are valid, and if you don't believe like me, you're an idiot, essentially. Um, But let's be honest. As Christians, we we need to reap, we need to own uh, this this title as hypocrites. Uh, We've earned that. Uh, And... That should matter to us because this is what it was said about Jesus. This is a profound statement. Let me show you this on the screen. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We should be those more than anybody who live out what they say they believe. And now Paul's going to give us the nuts and bolts of what mature Christianity looks like, what, what character looks like. And so let's get into it. I hope you have your Bibles open. Uh, Titus 1, verse 5. By the way, I'm going to say Timothy a lot. Just imagine I said Titus. Okay. <laughs> just don't say, he said Timothy, not Titus. Don't, just don't correct me. And don't tell me later. I just, just let me do it. I had a hard day yesterday. <laughs> this is what Paul says. This is why I left you in Crete. So he's talking to Titus, writing a letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint leaders in every town that I directed you. So here's the background. Jesus died, was buried, and rose to new life. And then when he rose to new life, he was ascending. And as he was ascending, or after he ascended, he gifted the church with all kinds of gifts. And he poured out the Holy Spirit. And these 120 believers just went nuts. And they began to evangelize all over through Jerusalem and then... Uh, by the time you get to Acts 6, it's still in Jerusalem. It's not, still not very old, you know. But thousands upon thousands of people were believing in Jesus. So this, this thing was exploding. And then in Acts 6 rolls around and persecution hurts, hits the church, scatters the church. And so now it's not just in Jerusalem. It's no longer uh, just there. It's actually now reaching to Samaria. So this whole thing where Jesus says, go into all the earth, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, it's starting to happen a little bit. And, and so it hits Samaria. And then in Acts 10, 
it finally gets to the Gentiles through Cornelius, but it really doesn't begin to explode in the known world until uh, the Apostle Paul comes onto the scene. And uh, he was a single guy, and he just went on missionary trip after missionary trip after missionary trip. And he went to all these major ports, and he began to just evangelize like crazy. He would get beat up, put in prison, almost killed, shipwrecked, all kinds of bad things happened to him. But what he did, him and his crew, he's never alone, but him and his crew would evangelize, and just tons of people would get saved. And then he would have to leave very quickly because he was at the threat of his life. And so he did all this evangelism, but it wasn't enough for him. He's like, I, I realize all these people are getting saved and this thing's growing like crazy, but you know what? Some things need to be put in order. So he directs Titus um, to go put things in order by appointing elders. So he's like, it's not enough that people just become a disciple of Jesus. It's not enough that they just hear the good news and get saved. There's something else that needs to happen if this is really going to be sustainable. And there are two really important observations about this verse 5 that I have to address before we get into like the meat of the text. Number one, this is a great note-taking message, by the way. Number one, disciples not engaged in a local church is a problem. Disciples not engaged in a local church is a problem. Paul's number one agenda for Titus is to establish churches, and churches get established when qualified elders, which I get this is the point, but but churches get established when qualified elders are leading. 83%, according to the latest Gallup poll, 83% of Christians believe they can have a meaningful relationship with Jesus apart from the local church. I just want you to know Paul would absolutely disagree. Titus, it's not good that... I'm super thankful that all these people, I mean, through my ministry and your ministry and other people's ministry, came to know faith, but I didn't come to, like, just to run some crusade and have a bunch of people get saved. My work is not done. We need to put in this into order. We need to get them connected into local churches. That's why we have church memberships. It's not enough to have Christian teaching inspired by Christian music and engage in, even engage in Christian mission, as awesome as those things are. You need to be connected to a local church led by qualified elders. Very important. Number two, order is not anti-spiritual. Did you know that he said we need to put some things into order? Paul was a guy who wanted to see the gospel and the activity of the Holy Spirit just absolutely unleashed. I mean, to think otherwise would be to like not understand or have read anything that Paul talked about. And yet he wants order. Let me show you what Paul says to the Corinthians in the, in the very beginning. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Um, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may... So he's like, I want you not to just be okay that every once in a while somebody does something that seems spiritual. I want you to be leaning into this. I want you to be like super ready to, and just on the front foot. But then he says this at the end. But all things should be done... In, Decently and in order. Here's my experience in in 12 years of leading a church. Some people love verse 1, and they never, ever pay attention to verse 40. And then there's a whole other crew of you who love verse 40 and never really, and disregard this. But here's here's my hope for us. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could be the kind of church, like, that does both of these things? That, like, is okay with messes. That's okay with, like, you know, just the gospel going out and all, you know, people, 
you know, just meeting all different kinds of people that create messes for our groups and how we want to do things. And, and, and then we have this such spiritual activity. It's like, oh, my gosh, that just happened, and that seemed really weird and crazy. And it just seems messy. Well, we'll we want to do things. We want to have this, but we want to have this too. So just before I get into it, I have to say, number one, it's a big problem for Paul, um, for disciples not connected intently to a local church, in membership to a local church. That's a big deal for Paul. Number two, order is not anti-spiritual. We need, we need to have both. So Paul tells Timothy to put the church in order by appointing elders. And then Paul here lists what I would say is the minimum requirement for spiritual leadership. This is the minimum required for spiritual leadership. In fact, I would say that this really is a list that, that better represents um, what spiritual maturity looks like, just in general. This is just spiritual uh, maturity. He's saying, like, certainly the leaders in your church are going to express spiritual maturity. So here's a minimum requirement. Make sure that you see this fruit in their, their life. Don't think of this as a list just for, like, a very small group of people. In fact, one of, for example, like one of the things it's going to say is that an elder should not be a drunk and shouldn't be violent. Now, how many here would say like more people in a church besides just the elders should not get drunk and beat people up? Like how many think that's, that's probably a good idea? All right. This isn't just for the, the few and the proud. This is just like Paul's painting a picture of what spiritual maturity looks like. So while this is a requirement for elders... Can I invite us all into wanting to be like this? Can we do that? So whether you're a community group leader or you want to apprentice to learn how to be a community group leader or one of our amazing volunteers or just simply someone who wants to make an impact in their neighborhood, in their workplace, with their families, in their own lives, these are things that we should all be striving for. And like I said, they're required for an elder. And just to say... Let me just say this too, tease this out. Spiritual maturity and, and, and age maturity are two different things. You don't get spiritual maturity by getting older. You just get older. Spiritual maturity comes through submitting to God in your life. And so that's why Paul says, look, elders, this is what he could have said. He could have said, elders are those who submit to God. That's but really, shouldn't we all submit to God? And if we all submit to God, this is what it's going to look like. This is, what, this is what's going to happen in your life. You submit to the Holy Spirit, your God, God, he's going to go in there, and he's going to do a bunch of stuff that makes your life look like this. That's all he's saying. Now, before I... I'm sorry, I have to... Before, the most interesting part of this list for me is what's not on the list. When I read through this, this is, this is what... Like, Things that you and I get really impressed with. And let me show you the first one that you know, giftedness is not on this list. I mean, we see people who are gifted and we're like, oh, they should lead. But it, because they're so, impre- or, and, and, and we, what we tend to do, or we say that, or we'll, we'll discount ourselves like, oh, I can't lead because I'm not gifted like that person. I just, I just want you to know that giftedness is not on the list. Now, gifts are, are awesome and God gives gifts to the church. But God can give a gift to anybody he wants. And he could take it from someone and he can give it to another. He, he doesn't need, he didn't like, he didn't make any one of us and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how awesome this person is. I didn't expect this person to be that gifted. 
Or like, I really tried with this person, but they're just like, it's not like that's the way it works. He, he just does what he wants to do. But it's so easy for us to confuse spiritual maturity with giftedness. We get so impressed by gifted people. God's not impressed at all. Paul's not impressed either. Um, so, man, they, they, they can sing really well. They can play an instrument. They can speak. They know their Bible. They must be really, really spiritual. Not really. Let me tell you something. God can gift someone, and it can come in a, in a very spiritual, mature package. And giftedness can come in the package of a total wreck. I've seen both. I've seen some very gifted people. Lives are a total wreck. Don't confuse the two. God gives out gifts irrespective of spiritual maturity. We can use those gifts. We can misuse those gifts. Or we can not use those gifts at all. That's a whole different conversation. But when it comes to spiritual maturity and minimum qualifications for spiritual leadership, giftedness is on, on the list. In fact, let me tell you this. Let me show you this. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1, 7. Paul, these guys, he says, you're not lacking any gift. You guys are like, there's no gift um, that, that, that is out there that you guys don't have. And then later on, he lists all these gifts. He's like, you guys are like head of the class when it comes to giftedness. But check out what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, but, at, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual mature people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, and he goes on to say, like, man, I had to, like, feed you milk. I couldn't give you the solid food. He's like, man, there's some things I'd really love to talk to you about, but I got to go back to the ABCs with you guys. You're very, very gifted, head of the class. It's not very mature. Here's something else you don't see on the list that impresses us. Spiritual power. I would expect to see giftedness of spiritual power. I mean, let's be honest. If I was to show up, if you didn't know who I was, all right, and I showed up in your group this week, and over the course of the next two or three months, I, I prophesied accurately about something in your life. And then somebody, crazy person came in, and like I cast a demon out of them. And then, like I lay my hands on someone who has cancer and they get healed. Might you be impressed with me? I would be impressed with me. <laughs> I think spiritual power is something we should all pursue. It's just not on the list. It doesn't equate to spiritual maturity. This is like, I don't even like mentioning this verse because it scares, it scares me. It's the scariest verse in the Bible. Matthew 7. On that day, many, that says many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, do, do we not prophesy in your name? I prophesied in your community group accurately. And cast out demon. I cast out, remember that when I did that? In many mighty works, you had cancer and you got healed. But check this out. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Spiritual power does not equate spiritual maturity. You know the devil has spiritual power? We should want, I want, God's power to come in mighty ways. Please don't mishear the point. One more mission I want to point out before we get to the actual list. Um, Third one here, theological training. 
Now, for those of you who like me, who like this point, aren't going to like this point. And those of you who like this point aren't going to like that point. So I get it. But I just wanted to make sure everybody's mad at me. So <laughs> Paul didn't say, hey, go find the guy with the Ph.D. He didn't say that. Now, we say that. Go find someone who has a Ph.D. Or go find someone who spent all their time in synagogues just like I did. Now, Paul had an education, an education of education. He, like, graduated from Harvard and Yale and Princeton, like, you know, ten times over. He was head of the class for sure. He didn't say that. And let's be honest, theological training is very impressive. And I'm not actually even knocking theological training. It's just not on the list. It's why the Pharisees were shocked when the disciples came and did all that they did, but they had no theological training. Check out what he says, the Pharisee says. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, super powerful in the other church, and they perceived they were uneducated common men. Theological training is not on the list. It is not a minimum requirement for spiritual leadership. He's not saying that theological understanding is not important. In fact, it's very important. Doctrine is very important. Um, Let me skip, uh, guys, on the slides. Let me skip down to John 13. Here's what's really important. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's why when we do a sermon, see, you're not blessed when you come and hear a sermon only. You're, you're only blessed if you hear truth and be like, I'm gonna, that's going to change my life. In fact, it, it will change my life. That's why when we go at the end, we do like this next step thing. Because we want to apply it. That's why when you go to community group, there's, like, there's two sections of every community group question. I don't know if your leader ever showed you his cheat sheet. He didn't come up with those. She didn't come up with those. It's good. There's two sections, understanding the text and then applying the text. Understanding the text is like if it's a 45-minute discussion, 15 minutes. Applying the text, 30 minutes. Why? Because the real deal isn't that you know a bunch of stuff. That does nothing for you. All it does is fill you with pride, actually. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It must shape your life. So at the end of this message, if you feel something like, I, like that's true and I should be like that, change. Seek to change. Go get prayer. There'll be people here who would love to pray with you. You don't have to do this alone. Take the steps. If you know these things, bless it. That's why we're doing this series, Truth, Living What You Believe. Okay, so let's get into uh, the list here. So Paul says here to them, he says, he gives an overview statement. He says they've got to be above reproach, which just basically means this is like no glaring weaknesses. So this isn't like you ever met someone, you, like if you, it's like, oh, he's a nice guy, but he's a nice guy, but he kind of drinks too much. He's a nice guy, but man, he like really chooses kids out all the time. Like he's a really nice guy, but he kind of like flirts a lot. She's a really nice girl, but she's always talking bad about other people. So if you have someone who's like, if you know someone, if you're this way, or you know, they have a glaring weakness. Like, so above reproach means you can't bring a charge against them, like an obvious charge. Now, let me just be clear. This is talking about your present, not your past. It's not like 
ever, but like, like the way you are today. This is talking about to progress and not perfect, perfection. We're not talking about being perfect. We're just saying like there's just nothing glaring that's just like, okay, this is a massive problem. So he's got to be above reproach. And so like, I mean, this, this hit home like just this whole perfect thing because I remember a few years ago I got the elders together and said, hey, we need some, some people in these leadership roles. Okay, here are some qualifications. I said, okay, now give me some names. And I got blank stares. I said, okay, what's going on here? And they look at me and they said, um, there's nobody in our church like that. In fact, there's nobody in this room like that. And okay, <laughs> not the past, but the present. Not perfect, but progressing. So as a, if you want to be, if you're, as a community group leader, I mean, we're just looking for people who want to pursue God and pursue people. If you're someone here and you, you're like, if you pursue God, like you want to grow in your relationship with God and you love people, it doesn't mean you're an extrovert. It just means that you care about people. You either want to gather them and love on them or you want to, you want to have a, whatever. Like you want to, you, you love people. Um, you could be a community group leader. Growing in God, growing in your love for people, growing in character. And then he gets a little specific. He says, husband of one wife. I'm going to start to go a little uh, fast through these here in a minute. This does not mean that he's only been married to, well, it means a couple things. It doesn't just mean that he's married, by the way. could be single. It, the better, this is kind of actually a bad translation. A better translation for this would be a one-woman man. Like, not someone who has darting eyes, sees a girl. So you could be married you could be married to, to one person, but you could still not be a one-woman man. If you're single, you don't have a reputation as a flirt. Single people can qualify. Then it says manages the home well, that you, you have believing children. doesn't mean to be a spiritually mature person. You have to have to be married. It doesn't mean you have to have children. Just saying if you are married and you do have kids, um, you need to be able to lead them well before you can lead other people well. So if the people who know you um, don't really respond to you and respect to you, then that is an indication that maybe you won't do very well leading other people once they get to know you. Um, And then it goes into some not statements. Not arrogant. Pride is a huge, huge, huge issue. It's one of the roots of all sin, and it takes... It should get, we should have special attention to pride and seek to like root it out as quickly and as fast as, pro, as, as, as uh, possible. And uh, pride is a blinding sin. So uh, here's a bad sign. If someone ever comes to you and says, hey, I think you're being a little arrogant, you're like, no, I'm not. That's a really bad sign. <laughs> Just You can never, ever win that argument. Have this mind about you, Paul says in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Count others as more significant than you. Just make it a practice. Whenever possible, prefer the other person. Count others as more significant. Not quick-tempered. Not prone to harbor resentments. Quick-tempered isn't just someone with... I've never met anyone... Every person I've ever met that's been quick-tempered, behind that is resentment or bitterness towards somebody else or something else. Quick-tempered is not, well, that's just my personality. No, there's something in your life that you're harboring resentment of, either toward another person or another situation, and it plays out itself in snapping. 
not a drunkard. This is not an injunction against alcohol in, in general, but it is an injunction against drinking too much. It's not against drinking alcohol, just drinking too much. Violent. Obviously, we shouldn't punch people. But it's not just violent in our actions, but violent in our attitude and spirit. James says that, that, a, that this comes from uh, thoughts of covetedness, selfish ambition, and a prayerless heart. He says this in, in James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions that are war within you? So like this, you desire and you do not have... So you murder. So you're, you're like, you have some like, I should deserve this. So you, you have this violent attitude. It goes back to quick-tempered. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. So you're not praying. You're like, I deserve something. You don't even pray about, God, should I have this? And God, if I should have it, can I have it? You just get angry. Greedy for gain. It's not greedy for gain. Sorry, these are not statements. This is, of course, financial. I mean, Jesus said, I don't mean to, you know, bring up old sermons, but Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot be the kind of person who is both passionately serving God and passionately serving money. It does not mean that you don't seek to maximize your financial situation. You should seek to maximize your financial situation. I'm just saying it's just not the most important thing to you. Because you are going to have to choose at some point, God or money. It will make you. And it's evident in how you give, which, again, we've talked about that, but also how you make decisions, where you live, and different things like that. So that certainly means like not, being, not wanting to lead or be mature for financial gain, but there are other kinds of gain. It just simply means like selfish ambition. And so it's like greedy for gain. It's just like what's in it for me attitude. So, so some of you, I mean, your volunteers are amazing, but I know that sometimes even as a volunteer, you get into this, like, nobody thanked me. Well, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because, no, because you want to thank? I think we should thank you, by the way. We're trying to. But why are you doing this? Don't you want to be like Jesus? How many people at the foot of a cross thanked him? What's the universal sign for zero? That's what, I mean, it's producing character. Not, not, not getting into something for what you get out of it. Not being greedy for gain. So that's what you shouldn't be. Here's what you should be. You should be hospitable. Which means, lo- the, the Greek word philoxena means love for strangers. You just love, you're preoccupied, uh, not with your, with your own, what happens to you, but you're just preoccupied with making strangers friends and friends, family. You're a lover of good. It was said of Jesus in, Luke, in Acts 10 that he just went about doing good. <laughs> That's just what if, and he just went about doing good. Are you a lover of good? Whatever th- things are honorable, pure, good, think on these things. Make this your preoccupation. You're a lover of good. Self-controlled. Self-controlled is restraining from what's doing wrong. This inward, uh, perspe- inward perspective regulates your outward behavior. So you're, it's a restraining yourself from doing wrong. Upright. This is a relational term. It means being right with God and right with others. Because God has, in His grace, has made you right with Him, it causes you to want to make things right with other people. It's a relational word. Holy. This does not speak to the quality of your obedience. Oh, He's a holy person because He, he obeys all the rules. The real meaning of the word holy just means set apart. 
It means to be holy means to understand that you've been set apart for a purpose. And moral behavior is just a byproduct of understanding that you've been set apart for a holy purpose. Oftentimes, you know, people would say, Jesus, do this, Jesus, do that. He would say, no, because that's not what I'm supposed to do. Not, not meaning like that's not good behavior, but no, that's not, why I've been, that's not why God sent me here. I've been sent here for a different reason to do that. I've been sent here to do this. You've been sent to this earth for a specific person. You are holy people. You are set apart people. So when you get the fact that you are set apart to be a witness of God, an ambassador of God, one who points people to the grace and love of Jesus, it affects how you live. I, I want Jesus is one who doesn't, uh, there's no deceit in his mouth. I want my life to point to him. So I, I don't lie, not because, well, that's the way good Christian people are. That's because you, you know that you're set apart to be a witness. That's your identity now. I'm a witness of him. That's how I handle my money. You know, Olympic athletes, they restrain themselves and they eat, uh, they get into a certain regimen of, of, of eating and nutrition and, diet and, and sleep and, and exercise. They refuse certain things because they are an Olympic athlete. And it's what Olympic athletes do. For an imper- for, excuse me, for a perishable reef. How much more Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 9, should we not do these things for an imperishable reef? Because we're set apart for a purpose. We're witnesses. So we don't say certain things on social media. Why? Because you're not supposed to? That's, you're breaking the rules? No, because that's not who you are. You're not a witness to some worldly thing or your own agenda. You are a witness to Jesus Christ. You represent him. You know that. You're a servant. He's a servant. You're a servant. Affects how you, your calendar affects how you make decisions. You're set apart people. You're holy. Self-disciplined. This is different. Now, self-control is restraining from what's doing wrong. Self-discipline is being motivated to do what's right. So I don't eat that. That's self-control. I should exercise. That's discipline. Potato, potato. I know. I'm the only one that's impressed with that. Um, able, okay, here are the two things that you should be able to do. This is spiritually mature people. Able to give instruction, which is a way better translation than able to teach, as some do. Because when we think teach, we think face mic, on a stage, able to communicate to large groups of people. That's not what it's saying. It's saying being able to communicate a piece of information, even just to one other person. You're able to give instruction. You're able to say, you know what, I think the Bible's saying that we should love people. I'm not a PhD, but I think it says, I think you should love people. That's able to instruct. Able to give instruction. Some elders have, and leaders in the church have gifts of communication. And they do most of the speaking. Some of them don't. But they can still teach. They can still give instruction. And so can you. You can do this. You can teach. Most of the teaching in the Bible isn't from guys on stages. Most of the teaching in the Bible is from one another. Colossians 3 says to, uh, to allow God's word to abide in you. Teaching, admonishing. Teaching one another, admonishing one another. That's where it comes up next. And able to rebuke, able to admonish each other. We should, as a regular practice, be teaching each other and admonishing, able to rebuke. Genuine love will rebuke based upon truth and will do so 
gently. Spiritually mature people will be able to discern truth and be able to offer a rebuke. So it's simply saying, if you see a brother or sister talking bad about someone, you could say, well, wait a minute. We're not supposed to do that. The gospel came to bring you and I together. This is tearing us apart. This kind of speech tears us apart. You shouldn't do that. That's a rebuke. Spiritually mature people are are able to do that. And you can absolutely do that if you want to. Now, there are two ways to respond to a message like this, just in closing. One is to let it crush you, or number two, let it change you. You look at that list, and all of a sudden, like, all the the guilt and the shame come back. You're like, I can never, I've been trying, the problem is I'm trying to do all that stuff, and I just can't do it. Um, If you believe that you're justified by your works, meaning, like, I need to be a good person so God will love me. I need to be a good person so the people in this room will accept me. If you think like that, you're like in this, the the yo-yo program, which is just up and down and up and down. God, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you're afraid to be honest with other people because you think they'll judge you because you you can't do that list. In fact, that may be one reason why you go from church to church to church to church because people find out you're not on that list. Let me just be really clear. Regardless of your ability to be like this, God loves you. The people in this church love you and accept you. People who really understand the gospel know that this is not a result of their good efforts. People who know the gospel know that if it wasn't for God's love, none of us would have a prayer at this Some of us may be able to do one of these things for a season. This happens not through human effort, through divine effort. It's not fruit of the flesh. It's fruit of the spirit. Again, this is why this is a minimum requirement for elders. Because all this takes to be able to do this is to submit to the spirit of God. Say, God, you win. You're the leader. I'm the follower. And when you do that, These things are a natural byproduct. If you go and try, you say, God, you're not the leader. I can do this without you. That's when it goes bad. There's only one person who can fully do this well. And his name starts with J, ends with S. And the key is to become like him. That's why I love Colossians 2, 6 has always helped me. Therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What does that mean? How'd you come to Jesus? You submitted to him. You asked his spirit to come to your life. You asked him to be the leader of your life. It was something that God's spirit did. It's not something you did. As you received Christ, so walk in him. Keep submitting to him. Keep saying, God, I, I, I'm, I need you. Don't let this message crush you. Let it change you.